listening to the coffee hour i'm sarah golseth thanks to concordia university wisconsin for your support of the coffee hour you can find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu today we get to talk about art and liturgical art and stained glass windows and i'm very excited for this conversation today joining me is dr david schmidt professor of practical theology chairman of the department of practical theology and the Bennett Chair of Homiletics and Literature at Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis to talk about the new stained glass windows in the chapel on campus. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Schmidt. Oh, thank you for having me. So before we get into all of the amazing artwork and all of the excitement surrounding the installation and dedication of these windows, can you give give me just a little bit of the background, the history of the chapel and the state of the windows prior to this installation of the new windows? Yeah. The chapel was built in 1992, and it was always desire and plan to have stained glass windows in the chapel. But at the time of the chapel construction, we didn't have the funding to fully furnish all of the windows. As you know, there are huge two-story windows throughout the chapel. And so we had the chancel window of St. Timothy and Titus, the namesake of the chapel, and that was done in a faceted glass, and it was a beautiful window. But all of the windows on the transept and then, you know, the sides of the nave, those windows were clear glass. And, uh, it was always desired that we would be able to bring windows in, and it wasn't until we received funding from a, the Finke Memorial Trust that we were able to bring this desire to fruition. Mm-hmm. Now, you just said a term, the faceted glass. Can you explain what that is? Well, that's a, there's, I didn't know much of this until I got on the stained glass committee, but the faceted glass, it's much thicker glass. And as you look at it, you can actually see that it has been, it's not cut smooth and clean like you would see a pane of glass in a window. It's like a chunk of glass that's stuck into the window. The windows at Concordia College Ann Arbor in their chapel are, I guess, university now. It's just beautiful. And that's faceted glass. And it it captures the light in a unique way. And it's very deep and rich in the colors. So the thickness of the glass makes these deep, rich colors. And so that's the glass of the front window. The difficulty with faceted glass is that it deteriorates over time. And so when we were actually planning on working with the windows, there was this question of, do we do the rest of the windows in faceted glass? Do we do the rest of the windows in a different type of glass and then try to make them work with the faceted glass we already have, or do we repurpose the faceted glass window in the front of the chapel somewhere else on campus and then just kind of start anew? And that's the option we finally chose, but we spent some time kind of thinking through which way we wanted to move. And I think part of it was that the faceted glass was going to need to be taken care of, refurbished. And so rather than do more faceted glass that would need that type of upkeep, we thought we would go with a different type of stained glass. Mm-hmm. Okay. That helps a lot with, with just the process of what actually went into all of this. So when what was the the impetus for choosing to install these new windows. And you mentioned that you're on the committee too. So what was, what was that process like? Well, 
There was a, a generous gift from the Thinking Memorial Trust. Actually, it was a four-part gift. They offered monies for the student endowment. They provided for four faculty chairs. Then there was a gift for the stained glass and a gift for the Concordia Historical Institute. And so that, um, that bequest was something that enabled the seminary to take action on fulfilling this dream of having the windows in the uh, chapel. And so they formed a committee. Dale Meyer was the chair of the committee, and he was president of the seminary at the time. Kent Burrison was on the committee. He was dean of chapel at the seminary at the time and also teaches in liturgical arts. Then we had Jim, Jim Brower, who was the former dean of the chapel. He is also a musician, so he's involved in the arts in that way. He was on the committee. I was on the committee. Eric Herman, a historian, was on the committee and an artist himself. And then we had Bill Matsett of Dovetail Creations. He is an artist. He was on the committee. And Marty Haig, the director of campus facilities, and Mike Lewis, the chief operating officer. And so that was the committee. And as you can tell, we had kind of individuals who had different gifts and different backgrounds that they were bringing to the table as we began to think about this project of the stained glass. It took about six years of planning and so forth to move from when we started to when the windows were finally installed just this, just this past September. Yeah, that is a lengthy process. And you mentioned a little bit of some of the decisions you had to make with whether to do the faceted glass or to take out the chancel window and all of those things. So what was the initial things you all had to decide to even move forward to to choosing an artist and all of those other more artistic things down the line? Yeah, well, one of the I think one of the first things was, you know, since the chapel had been in use since 1992 with all of the clear glass windows, there was a sensitivity to the sensibilities of the worshiping community at present, and we realized that they really enjoyed all of the light, that, that they appreciated the light that the windows gave, the ability to see through the windows to outside. There was this love of creation that was kind of present here. And so there was that was one of the things that kind of pushed us away from the faceted glass because the faceted glass would have not had that transparency. And we began thinking about wanting designs that had transparency. And so we engaged in either 11 or 12 different stained glass companies, and we kind of looked at their work and then we chose three of them that kind of made the finalists. We brought in and talked with much more fully and then visited their places of creation. And the stained glass company we chose was Lynchburg Stained Glass in Virginia. And the reason we chose them is because of the way in which Rich Buswell, who's the senior artist and creative designer, the way in which he works with transparency in the glass, that he you have some panes of glass that are actually clear so that you can see outside. You have other panes of glass that are clear but rippled. He has a few pieces that are clear and faceted, and so they sparkle like diamonds, and they really throw off the light depending upon where the sun is at the day. And then even with some of the colored glass, it's pretty transparent. Much of the glass was made in Germany, and so you have like the blues that you have, you're going to see streaked, and that you've got 
different shades of blue woven together just like you would in ripples of water in the glass. And it was the, I think primarily it was the beauty of that ability to capture transparency and yet color, which caused us to lean toward a Lynchburg stained glass as we were working on the project. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of, I I got to see these windows in bright daylight over the weekend. And yeah, it's true that the colors are so vibrant and the light that comes through them is really breathtaking. So you guys did a really great job with all of this, all of the thinking and planning that went into what these would look like at the end. So after you you chose a designer, what went into choosing the theme and really coming up with the concept for all of the windows that would surround everyone in the chapel? Well, I think, I, you know, the very fact, the way you phrased that question is beautiful. And that is that you, you recognize that we don't want the windows to be individual pieces that are separate from everything else. And so there was this desire to have some type of theme that would enable all of the windows to be held together and yet be differentiated from one another. And so the theme we settled on was the Te Deum, an ancient hymn of the church dating from the fourth century. And when you read the Te Deum, you have kind of this opening celebration of praise as heaven and earth worships God. And then you move into kind of figures in worship. You have the heavenly host worshiping. You have on earth the apostles, the prophets, the martyrs, the whole Christian church on earth worshiping. And then at the very end of the hymn, you have this song of praise to Christ for his overcoming death, his resurrection, and his return. And those kind of three components of the Te Deum formed a way of thinking about the various spaces in the chapel. So you've got windows right as you walk into the narthex. And so there you have the baptismal font and you have these two windows. Part of them are seen at the lower floor. The other part is seen up in the balcony. And so we kind of had the heaven and earth praising you in those windows. So on earth, we have the, the waters of creation on the one side, the waters of new creation on the other side, and in the middle is the baptismal font. And so it kind of initiates this water theme and the waters of life theme that flow throughout the windows. And then the upper story windows that are not seen until you go up into the balcony Those kind of are dealing with the heavens. You've got Noah looking at the sky after the flood. You've got Abraham having this vision from God that his promise from God that his generations would be like the stars in the sky. And then you have the vision from the the apocalypse of St. John with the churches, the angels of the seven churches kind of in the sky. And so that gives us the heaven and earth. Then you move into the nave and you've got two windows on either side of the nave. And that's where we put the apostles, the prophets, the martyrs. So all of these figures in the biblical story who are giving praise to God. And then when you come further into the church and you move into the chancel area, you have the transept windows and plus the chancel window. And that's where we placed a triptych of the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the future return of Christ. And so the Te Deum kind of laid out a map for us that we could work with as we look at the physical space of the chapel and the way in which you move into the chapel and then move forward to the altar for worship in the Lord's Supper. 
And they are, I love all the symbolism that goes into these, all of the concepts and ideas that people are just kind of immersed in now that when, with all of this artwork surrounding you and all of these, the symbols of ancient church and all these things. And we're going to talk more of that. We need to take a quick break. We're talking with Dr. David Schmidt from Concordia Seminary about the new stained glass windows in the chapel on campus there. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. Joining me is Dr. David Schmidt, Professor of Practical Theology, Chairman of the Department of Practical Theology and the Bennett Chair of Homiletics and Literature at Concordia Seminary. We're talking about the beautiful new stained glass windows and all of the preparation and planning and work that went into designing them, symbolism, and all of these wonderful things that people can experience now when they walk into the chapel. And before we went to break, you were getting into the theme of the Te Deum and how this theme kind of moves people through the chapels. So can you, I know we're on radio, so this is a, a little challenging because we're talking about visual art here, but I would love it if we could kind of take a, an audio tour around the chapel and and some of the cool symbols that people will be able to see. And we'll, we'll of course, include the, the video and uh, the pictures for these windows in the show notes so people can look at what we're talking about when they're listening. But can you kind of give us a, an audio tour around the chapel of some of the highlights of these windows? Oh, sure. I've, by the way, I don't know if it matters, but we actually have an audio visual tour on our website for people at the chapel mm-hmm. windows if they ever want to look at them more closely. So it's, you know, you kind of walk into the narthex, you have the waters of creation and new creation on either side, the south and the north side of the narthex. And both of those windows are image of a dove, the dove hovering over the waters in creation, and then a dove that is not hovering over the waters as much as it is descending upon the waters in the new creation. And the big difference between those two windows, there's the similarity of the waters and the dove, but with the waters of new creation, you have a Cairo. And so you have that symbolism of Christ's baptism and the baptismal waters that bring us into the people of God. And so right in the center of the narthex is our baptismal font. And so it's a way of entering into the church and being visually reminded that God not only created you, but God also redeemed you in the baptismal waters. And so that's the narthex area. As you move into the nave, you've got four windows, two on the south, two on the north, And you find that the windows move in a temporal progression from the Old Testament on the south side, and then through the New Testament to the church on earth now and the coming of Christ on the north side. And so on the south side for the Old Testament, you have um, Noah and Abraham in the balcony windows, and then you have Moses at the very bottom of the first nave window on the south. Moses, is uh, his hands are outstretched, 
and he's looking into the wilderness wanderings, and you see kind of the sea parting and the journey that God's people would make in the windows are in the wilderness wanderings. And right at the bottom of Noah says, I kind of like the, the burning bush that is created. You have the fires, and yet you have the green life of a plant melded together, and it's just a wonderful representation of the call of Moses. Above him is Ruth, and Ruth's eyes are directed toward her descendant David, who is sitting on a throne. He has a harp recalling his shepherd status, and actually the the wooden frame of the harp is made into a shepherd's staff, and yet he's also sitting regally with a crown on his head and a, a beautiful robe that indicates that God has taken a lowly shepherd and used him to be a king of his people. And then above David is Solomon's temple. So we've got kind of that in the historical narrative of the Old Testament. You get to the next window, we call it the prophet's window. You have four scrolls that run from top to bottom in that window, and you have the prophet Isaiah with the angel touching his lips with a coal. You have the prophet Jeremiah symbolized with a heart and a spike in the heart. Then you have Daniel and the lion's den, and you also have Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, you know, most people are familiar with the, the dry bones passage. Uh, but what we chose to emphasize because of the water theme, we chose to emphasize the temple with the water flowing out of the temple, the living waters that are flowing out of the temple that Ezekiel saw in a vision. And so all of those scrolls kind of run from top to bottom. And when you get to the bottom, you watch as this word becomes flesh, because at the very bottom of the screen or of the, of the window, there is a... Um, the nativity of Christ, and the end of a scroll forms the headstone of the manger. And so you've got Mary and Joseph and a prophetic figure all looking upon the Word becoming flesh in the manger with Christ. And so that's the south side that brings you from the Old Testament to the birth of Christ. On the north side, the first window is the, the apostles and martyrs, and so you have a mixture of figures. You have Peter and Paul. You have Timothy and Titus. We decided to kind of pay homage to and honor to the original windows that were in the chancel in the chapel, so we've got them. Their figures are very similar to the ones they had in the original window. You have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and you have a martyr burning at the stake with an angel offering the martyr the victory palm branch. And so that's the apostles and martyrs. And then you have the whole Christian church on earth, which is a beautiful window, actually the most difficult of the window for design. We, uh, the committee went back and forth with the artist on that window in so many ways, because, you know, the question is, how do you capture that language of the Te Deum? That says, you know, a holy, you know, the holy Christian church throughout the world acknowledges you. And so we have a Eucharistic table with a gathering of people. They're differentiated by age. They're differentiated by ethnicity. They're differentiated by social status. One is holding a cap as a beggar. They're differentiated by physical ability. One is there on a crutch to kind of get that vision that our Lord invites and opens up a table to all people, regardless of their abilities, their social status, their age, and ethnicity. So that's that nave area. 
And I guess I should go on. I feel like I'm talking forever. So. Oh, no, it's so interesting that all of the symbolism just so wonderful to see all of this in in these bright colors and images and kind of get, just get immersed in it. And you did mention that the, the front, the chancel and the transepts, that creates a triptych. Can you talk about that too? Yeah. So the triptych, that ancient form where you had two wings that would close over the center image and then they could open up and display three images. And so on the, the triptych is south transept window then the chancel window, then the north transept window. And so we worked with the death of Christ. So we have a crucifixion window. We have the resurrection of Christ in the central window and the return of Christ in the north window. And so once you get closer in, uh, you see that the church's praise is all surrounded and around this gift of the Father of his Son for our salvation and his death, resurrection, and his promised return. And uh, we can talk in more detail about, you know, the crucifixion window, if you want. I'd be happy to lean in a little bit more on that one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so the Te Deum has that line, you overcame the sharpness of death. When I give tours of the chapel windows, I like to ask people, how does the window capture the sharpness of death that Jesus overcame? And when you look at the window... You're going to notice there's a lot of objects of sharpness. And so like at the bottom of the window, people will usually point out a what looks to be like a nest of thorns. And so you've got the sharp spikes of the thorns that form this nest. And yet if you look closely, you notice how those thorn branches are starting to bud into olive branches. And so there's this overcoming of the sharpness of death, bringing about peace, right? The olive branch of peace. And so you've got this nest that has sharpness, but also has the hope of life that comes out of death. Then in the nest, you have a pelican, ancient symbol of the church. There's the story of the pelican who, when her young are starving, she will pierce her own breast and feed them her blood. And their life is based on the blood of their mother. And so there's a pelican piercing her breast, and you have two of the pelicans are drinking the blood of their mother's breast. And then you have two other pelicans who are drinking the blood that's flowing down from the cross. And what I like about that is I think it's a way of giving a viewer all of the cues that they need to make the connections, but it's not making the connections explicitly. So you have these children that are being sustained by the self-sacrifice of the mother, and you have us as God's people who are sustained by the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so there's this life that we are given that flows out of the death of Christ. So once again, overcoming sharpness of death. And then when you actually look at the large window, you see these very strange claw marks almost that are going through the window. And that is another example of the sharpness of death that tears at the fabric of God's creation, that this was never his intention for his people to suffer death. It's a punishment for sin and rebellion. And so you have these sharp claw marks, and yet they're, they're overcome by Christ, who is hanging on the cross and who is looking toward 
the resurrection and you have a, an angel on one side offering him the cup of God's wrath, and you'll notice that cup of God's wrath has kind of a jagged mark in the center of it as if it has been, as if itself is sharp which is nicely mirrored in the the chancel window where the cup of the Lord's Supper has that mark, but it's been made beautiful, right? So you got the angel offering Jesus the, the wrath of God's punishment, the cup of God's wrath, and yet you have another angel placing a palm branch of victory in his hand. And so you once again see this overcoming of the sharpness of death. So it's an absolutely beautiful window. And it's one of the things I like, you know, Jim Brower was a musician, and so he was very interested in the angels and the music that they're making. And, you know, the Te Deum is a hymn of praise. It leads us in our worship and praise. And so there's all of these angels with instruments throughout the windows. But when you look at that crucifixion window, you'll notice that the angels have their instruments, but none of the angels are playing them. They're holding a trumpet. They're not playing the trumpet. And the one angel who's holding a violin is taking the bow and pointing it at Jesus. And so you see how in in awe at the self-sacrifice of God, the angels themselves are silent as they look at the gift of life in Christ. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, that window is very striking, as are all of them, really. And I wish we had more time to talk about more of the beautiful artwork here, but we're all out of time. So we will include the link to the the video tour on the Concordia Seminary website, as well as all of the pictures and the descriptions so people can see them. And if you're in the St. Louis area, I highly encourage you to go visit the seminary and view these windows in person. They are really quite beautiful. Dr. David Schmidt, Professor of Practical Theology, Chairman of the Department of Practical Theology and Bennett Chair of Homiletics and Literature at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.